Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome back to Conversations, and I'm very pleased to be joined today, I guess for the third time on this conversation, but for many, 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 many times through our long friendship, uh, Steve Rosen, Professor of uh, International Relations in, in the Government Department at Harvard, served in the federal government, served in uh, many advisory roles to other to parts of the U.S. government, and also, of course, author of many books and articles, but I won't, I won't belabor the introduction, but... Um, uh, but, but the purpose of today's conversation has written a couple of excellent articles recently in the Bulwark on sort of the n- nuclear weapons issue that has now been raised by the Putin's threats and by this moment. So, Steve, thanks for thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Bill. It's always good to get together with you. Yeah, so this will be good, I think. And I think our last conversation was uh, in January of 2019, so three years ago. Right. And I think, if, if I remember correctly, near the end of it, we were both sort of laughing almost. At it. We discussed nuclear weapons briefly and something you've studied and kept an eye on through the years and, and know the history of very well in the Cold War and the threats and so forth. And sort of you're saying we have to take those seriously again and think about their relationship to other weapons and to foreign policy. And we both laughed at, I mean, it seems so distant, so distant from the yeah. post-1991 world. And... Uh, and uh, a little scared, 2002, I guess, with India and Pakistan. But since then, who's mm-hmm. you know, who's really thought about nukes apart from trying to stop other countries from getting them a little bit, I guess. But I guess they're back. They're back in the news, right? Yeah, I mean, this uh, this is March 30th. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington both uh, both have front page stories about what is Putin doing with this tactical nuclear weapon stuff, and you know, uh, are nuclear threats is you know is this real or how should we think about it? And there's this general air of, what, you know, isn't this kind of, you know, to use uh, uh, John Kerry's phrasing, isn't this kind of old school stuff? And, yeah, uh, it's not and, 21st century, really, you know. Yeah, yes. uh, and the last conversation we had, we were talking about changing character of warfare and precision weapons and cyber warfare, all this kind of stuff. And then we noted that a lot of countries around the world take nuclear weapons seriously, so maybe we should too. And then you, you asked me, Steve, do you think you can get Americans to take nuclear weapons seriously? We, I just remember vividly, we looked at each other, we were like, nah, it's never gonna happen. But the reality is, uh, is an ally. I mean, it's, it, it forces at least intermittently to focus on uh, what's really going on in the world. And um, uh, the fact that we're surprised that Putin is engaging in this kind of nuclear coercion or saber rattling or whatever you want. The fact that we're surprised shows you how powerful is our impulse not to think about this or to think about it in a way which makes it uh, politically irrelevant. Um, so if you if you want to, I mean, if yeah, you I would just say, you, say a word. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, you could say that's a health. It's, it's an understandable impulse. Maybe not a healthy one. Maybe a healthy one. You just oh, want look, to think I mean, yeah. those weapons will never be used. Let's just bracket them and put them aside. Yeah. Uh, and and maybe we can deter each other from using them. And that's we have to keep them. Some people want to get rid of them, but right. you know, and and we don't need to think about them in a sort of strategic or foreign policy way. That's the impulse, I guess. And and, but and Putin has given us yeah, a wake up right. call, right? I mean, it's Putin. And once you begin, uh, you know, looking at what you prefer not to look at. You see, it's not only Putin, it's the Chinese, it's it's probably the Iranians, it's the North Koreans. In other words, we've deliberately blinded ourselves to a major element of reality, which is generally not a healthy thing to do, to ignore uh, what's actually going on in the world, particularly if what's going on in the world is at the disposal of people who are not well inclined towards you. But I think part of the, the, the problem is a deliberate 
educational effort in the academy and the, all the respectable centers of foreign policy uh, to teach people that to teach people a certain version of the nuclear history which makes nuclear weapons irrelevant. I mean, you know, I went to school. The basic line was, well, the United States got nuclear weapons. We got it because we were worried about Nazi Germany, but we wound up with them. Uh, they were horrible. There were hundreds of thousands of people, radiation deaths. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have used it against Japan. Maybe we should. Who knows? But we should never use it again. And then the Russians got it. And then we freaked out. They got the, the Russians were scary. We didn't know what they were doing because it was a totality. So when is this? They explode there. They di we discovered that they have the weapon in 49. Is that right? August of 49, we're running an active intelligence program. They didn't publicize it. We, we knew about it. Uh, and then, uh, this again, this is the standard academic line. We didn't know what was going on. We worst cased it. We just assumed the worst because we didn't know. And we did all kinds of things that, in retrospect, was wasted a lot of money, didn't need to do bomber gaps, missile gaps. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. And the Cuban Missile Crisis shows through the brilliance and leadership of John F. Kennedy that everybody wants to avoid nuclear war. Soviets don't want it, we don't want it. We have a mutual interest in getting arms control, we have a mutual interest in denuclearizing, pulling back. And that's sort of what we are now. And it culminates in what was the dominant element in the political discourse of the United States before this war, which was to push for nuclear weapons to be used uh, solely, the sole purpose of nuclear weapons should be to deter the use of other nuclear weapons. That was the language that Joe Biden endorsed in his, his administration, but he was not the only one. It was Henry Kissinger endorsed these kinds of things. And now we see Vladimir Putin using nuclear weapons in ways that are rather different from uh, using them as the sole purpose being to deter other nuclear weapons attacks. He's saying, well, you know, if there's an existential threat, if, you know, if we're really under pressure, and then, so we're surprised because this whole story we've told ourselves is that nuclear weapons are horrible, indiscriminate, which all of which is true, and therefore the only use that they should have uh, is to deter other weapon, other people from using nuclear weapons. So I suppose the counter argument would be, yeah, but you're taking Putin's saber rattling too seriously, and in the actual history of the Cold War, isn't that conventional account right, or or is it not right? I mean, if nuclear weapons have always been point. okay, so give me the, give me the true account in okay. three minutes of the, of the last uh, of the nuclear era. But that's okay. important, right, to get the history I'll right, you, I guess. I'll give you an account of the history, both from the United States side and from the Soviet side. By the way, this new history, it, people do not question the facts, but the history has been done primarily by. Uh, non-academic scholars, people working outside of the framework of universities, because there's an orthodoxy, there is a real orthodoxy about what is the, uh, the right way to think about this and teach it. Uh, on the Soviet side, they see the United States getting nuclear weapons and they immediately throw huge amounts of their uh, GDP. They're poor, they're destroyed by war, but they put everything they've got into building nuclear weapons uh, and defenses against nuclear weapons. For them, the first exercise that makes the, teaches them what you can do with nuclear weapons is not the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's the Suez Crisis of 1956. British, French, and Israelis go to Egypt, try to stop Nasser from nationalizing Suez Canal. The American version of this is Eisenhower tells the British, cut it out, we're gonna, we're gonna cut off your, your, your loans if you don't pull out, and he pulls out. The Soviet version, which is in all the Soviet histories, textbooks, memoirs, is Khrushchev threatens the British with nuclear weapons. He says, we're turning out nuclear missiles like sausages. We can obliterate you. And the British and the French pull back. 
the lesson that they taught that nuclear coercion worked. Gamal Abdel Nasser thanks Khrushchev for using nuclear threats to save Egypt. And we say, that's crazy. That's not what happened. But history, to some extent, is constructed. What they did was nuclear weapons are useful. And then in 1969, when they get into a border dispute with the Chinese, they again, they mobilize their nuclear weapons. They engage in all kinds of threats. They put, they put missiles on alert near the border of China. They fly bombers around. They feed stories into the Western press that the Soviet Union is getting ready for a nuclear war. And the Chinese back down. The Chinese agree to negotiations. The Chinese really believe it. They evacuate their major cities. The Communist Party headquarters of 70 Chinese cities are evacuated. So the, the lesson that the Russians have taught themselves is that nuclear coercion done properly is very useful. These are terrible, horrible weapons. We can use the fact that they're terrible and horrible to get other people to back down. And in the current situation, Putin is using nuclear weapons not on the battlefield, at least not yet, but he's using them in a way to constrain NATO. Everybody in there is like, we can't do this, we can't do that. Why? It's World War III. Well, what do people mean when they say it's World War III? We're, we're not afraid anymore of, so, of Russian tanks. We've seen how ineffective they are. We're afraid that World War III is going to be a nuclear war. Putin is using the risk of escalation as a way of getting the uh, NATO powers to behave in ways that he wants them to behave or not do things he doesn't want them to do. On the U.S. side, we also took nuclear weapons very seriously because we saw that nuclear weapons might be, this was the Eisenhower Doctrine, a cheaper way of defending American positions all over the world. Remember, Eisenhower was desperately worried that facing the Soviet threat would make the United States have a militarized economy, a militarized society. He wanted to get more bang from the buck. He adopts this position of massive retaliation, which is what? If you, the Soviet Union, do things that are short of nuclear war, like invade Europe, we'll use our nuclear weapons, all of them. So, and we put tactical nuclear weapons all over Europe <laughs> because we say, I mean, literally, we have thousands of nuclear weapons. And our doctrine, NATO doctrine, agreed to by the European powers, is that if the Soviet Union invades West Europe and the United States cannot defend West Europe, NATO cannot defend West Europe with non-nuclear means, it will be NATO doctrine to use nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons to defend Europe. And does that ever, that, incidentally, that never changes, right? And that never changed. I mean, there was, was fir no first use protests here and, and serious right. thinkers said, maybe this isn't wise, it's better to build up our conventional forces. But I think it's been the case since NATO was founded that we have, I mean, for all the uh, being shocked at Putin, and I'm not making right. a moral equivalence here, obviously, between Putin and NATO, but th that it was also our doctrine that in certain yes. circumstances we yes. might have to use tactical nuclear uh, weapons. It is, it is our doctrine. It's the Pakistani doctrine. American officers visiting Pakistan say, you, you seem to be recapitulating what we did in Europe in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, but until the war in Ukraine, again, the debate was, should we get, should we adopt, well, not nuclear first use, but get rid of the tactical nuclear weapons. Sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter the use of nuclear weapons, not to stop a non-nuclear attack. And now the Biden admission has pulled that back and he says, the fundamental purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear weapons, but it can't be used, they can be used for other things as well. Russia, the reason why we're, we're taking Putin so seriously now is for decades, since the 1990s, Russian military doctrine has been, 
we will deploy nuclear weapons in ways which allow us to defend uh, a territory's interest that we cannot defend otherwise. Nuclear weapons, because they're so powerful, because they are so frightening, may enable you to do things you can't do with the resources you have without nuclear weapons. In other words, it's not crazy. It may be wrong. It may run risks that people ought not to run. But there's a logic to it. Uh, and the Russia, which was impoverished after the Cold War, uh, which was went through a period in which its conventional military was pretty much worthless, had thousands of nuclear weapons. So it's not crazy to say, well, we've got nuclear weapons. We don't have very much else. So we're going to key our, our military and our national defense doctrine to the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Putin changed that around, but now we see that his military still is not very good. Uh, and that's the reason why I, I wanted to write those articles for the Bulwark. The Russian military is failing, it's, it, it, visibly on the battlefield. The current pullback of Russian forces north of Kyiv is because the Russian military has to fall back. It's taken such heavy casualties on the order of 20 to 30 percent, if, NATO, if, if U.S. Defense Department estimates are roughly correct. It has to fall back to regroup. Uh, if the Russian position deteriorates further, or if Putin has, continues to have the kind of objectives which he seems to have, he still may want to do things like stop NATO from supplying the, the Ukrainians with the advanced weapons that we've been supplying. The, one of the times a war between the United States and R the Soviet Union was most likely was in February of 1951. Why? The Chinese had sent volunteers into South Korea to invade and take over. And just like the Russian army now, the Chinese army in Korea was falling apart because the Chinese volunteers had been told, hey, the South Koreans will welcome them with open arms. They're a puppet regime. They'll collapse. They were not prepared for a long war, just like the Russian army is not prepared for the war now. Massive defections started happening in the People's Liberation Army in China. The army was falling apart. And Russia began to, Soviet Union began to move enormous forces to the border with uh, North Korea. At that time, an armistice uh, was negotiated, which gave the Russians time to pull back, regroup. Now, my, my hunch is that the Russians are seeking these limited pullbacks, ceasefires, whatever, to give themselves time to, re uh, to regroup. Uh, if they face further problems, which they may face anyway, the incentives for them to save their position by using nuclear weapons will exist. With what they do, we, we cannot predict. So I want to come back very much to the current situation and how to think about what Putin's threatening and what our appropriate response is and how much are we uh, self-deterring and so forth by right. escalation. But just one more thing on the history because it's so interesting. So all this stuff, uh, a colleague, my, our friend Andy Zwick reminded me of this uh, last week. I mean, Tom Schelling and Herman Kahn, who you and I worked for a little bit yes. in the, when we were in college, and um, all this, Henry Kissinger actually, one of his first books that made his name yes. was about nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear weapons and foreign policy, I think it was called, I mean, nuclear right. weapons in American foreign policy. Um, that thinking was, I mean, just give people a sense of what, what was the point of all that? I mean, why was very intelligent people from really a variety of fields in some ways, mm -hmm. history, political science, but also, you know, the natural sciences, really, or math, almost game theory, mathematics, got so interested in the nuclear stuff. We all tend to look back at that. So that was weird. I guess they were just like, and that was a 50s, 60s thing. But those, that kind of thinking 
continues to have continued to have relevance even when people didn't want to talk about it too much and continues to have relevance in your view or is that just from a different era it continues to have relevance for a number of reasons um, it could it continues and give to a sense relevance. what is that how would you characterize that thinking thinking the unthinkable is that the name of Herman's book and uh, uh, that was one of the titles of it and Kissinger's uh, third book was uh, the necessity for choice which was an argument in favor of American tactical nuclear weapons in Europe saying wow. it was the, that was the only we the argument is we can't afford to spend enough money to match the Soviet Union in non-nuclear forces. They're a totalitarian society, they can squeeze their people, we just can't match them without militarizing. And therefore we have, Eisenhower, Kissinger, other people, that so we have to use nuclear weapons threats to redress the balance. Okay, that was the 1950s, maybe we overestimated the Soviet economy, Soviet military threat, but what's the problem the United States faces now? We're facing obviously a hostile Russia, we're facing a China which is pretty ambitious. We don't know if it's as risk acceptant as Russia is, but it's certainly said it's going to take Taiwan back. It's done all kinds of things in South China. But the point is, we're facing the same dilemma that people in the United States faced in the 1950s. We're facing an adversary who may be willing to spend more than we're able to spend. And therefore, we need to think about ways to deter the, our adversary without matching the man-for-man, missile-for-missile, tank-for-tank. The Chinese economy is about as big as the United States economy is now, a little bit smaller on various measures, a little bit bigger on other measures. Uh, but China's not the only pro uh, problem we face. Obviously, we face Russia, we face North Korea. Iran hasn't gone away in all this. And people are asking themselves, how do we within the limits of what we're willing to spend, how do we deal uh, with the threats from North Korea, China, etc.? And our allies, who are the ones who are at risk, are the ones asking us to pay more attention to nuclear weapons. <laughs> the former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, last week says, the war in Ukraine highlights the importance of American nuclear weapons in Japan. <laughs> Because and that's Abe, the former prime minister, this, this, not an insignificant figure. Yeah. And uh, incidentally, there's been a drumbeat of retired generals and other people from Japan coming to and say, "Hey, Americans, uh, we got to do something about the Chinese. They have ten times as many people as we do. They have an economy that's bigger than ours. Uh, how about you do for Japan what you did for Germany during the Cold War?" We're not crazy, we don't want to start a nuclear war, but you, Americans, you put nuclear weapons in Germany, and you still have nuclear weapons in Europe, in Turkey, Belgium, and Germany. Hmm. Why don't you quietly kind of adopt the practice of rotating American airplanes through Japanese base with nuclear weapons? Why? So that we have the same deterrent benefit that the Europeans do. Nobody, the Russians won't attack Germany. Why? Because there's American nuclear weapons there. It might start off the chain reaction that leads to a nuclear war. The Russians won't run that risk. We want you to pose that same kind of threat to China because we can't afford to build a military the same size as the Chinese. We just can't. We don't, you know, we have, they have 1.3 billion people. We have 120 million people. They have 10 times as many people. We just can't do it. Uh, the South Koreans have, have gone off and on about saying, hey, you pulled your tactical nuclear weapons out of Korea when the Cold War was over, maybe, maybe you should put it back. In other words, the countries that are on the front line 
have, are, have asserted and are reasserting the importance of the kind of thinking that Tom Schelling, Herman Kahn, Henry Kissinger engaged in in the 1950s, because they're at risk. They're at risk because of the same thing, which is because of an adversary which is richer and maybe more risk accepted than we are. And even if, you know, we beefed up, beefed up our conventional spending and our forces and we could equate, you know, some of uh, uh, equalize the population differences and so forth. Yeah. Uh, it's still a fact that if the opponent has a certain weapon, there's a certain common sense case for, well, you need to have the same weapon to deter too. So it's not simply a matter, I think, of spending. It is partly that, yes. particularly in the U.S. Yes. case, being 3,000 miles away and not uh, being willing to, you know, we can't yes. match the Russian army in manpower, obviously, in Europe. Right. I mean, even at the height of the Cold War, we were right. smaller. But... Um, but yeah, it's also just a matter of kind of unless you have a magic way to get the Chinese and Russians, and for that matter, others, the North Koreans, to, to repudiate this. This is an important part of uh, deterrence and of and of allowing other things to happen. Well, an important part of deterrence, let's just say generally. Yes. I guess that's what strikes me about about your the way you put it, which is very helpful for me at least. I mean, that it's it, you just can't think through deterrence without including some conversation of nuclear weapons. Now, maybe the first 80, the first 80 percent of the conversation should be about conventional deterrence and making sure you have mm -hmm. the right arms and the right, you know, anti-air stuff and the drones and all this kind of stuff. But it can't just be, uh, it can't just be uh, wished away. No, it's the terrible paradox of nuclear weapons, which is they are horrible weapons. They are weapons that are different from other kinds of weapons, but precisely because of that, they have a power which you cannot ignore, which is you get into a crisis uh, and you are engaged in, in non-nuclear warfare and defense, and one side says, and we have nuclear weapons and you don't. And we can do things that you're just not able to respond to in kind. Uh, Look, I once yeah. ask a I once ask a biological anthropologist friend of mine says, you know, why do we pay so much attention to nuclear weapons? I mean, Thomas Schelling famously said, you can kill as many people with uh, uh, with uh, razor blades as you can with nuclear weapons if you're if you're sufficiently bloodthirsty. And this guy who's a biological anthropologist said to me like looked at me like I was stupid. He said, it's because the human central nervous system is hardwired to respond strongly to bright flashes of light and loud noises. It th when you think of nuclear weapons, what do you think of? You think of that huge mushroom cloud. You think of that huge flash of light. That's a l literally, quite literally, a visceral reaction that people have to, to nuclear weapons, which makes them psychologically important, which makes them politically important. So you're right. It's not just the, well, if we spent enough money, we wouldn't need them. Those weapons are terrifying, and they can be used to, to terrifying course if you don't have the ability to respond to kind. But I think your point about when people say World War Three, they're they're not, you know, they're really saying nuclear, the use of nuclear weapons. Yeah. They don't quite want to use that term. I was struck thinking as you said that I was thinking when people say NATO, an Article Five guarantee, we'll come to each other's defense. They're partly saying, of course, that we will ship arms in as we're doing to Ukraine, which is not NATO. Let's just say if it were Poland, we would mm -hmm. obviously we would send soldiers, presumably, and pilots and airplanes. But what Article Five really is ultimately. It really does. It's a nuclear, it's 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 a nuclear, nuclear guarantee. Yeah, yes, it opens right. the door right. to the nuclear right. Right. world, too. And I, I guess what you're saying is that's not something that Canada should be walked away from or wished away, given the world we have. Maybe at right. some point in the future, Putin goes away, and she goes away, and everyone goes away, and North Korea goes away, and Iran goes away. We can get to a better world and repudiate the worst weapons, but one of the most 
dangerous weapons or uh, most deadly weapons, but we're not. Yes, no, your, your point about the, uh, the NATO being a nuclear guarantee is exactly right. Everybody noticed that after the Russians invaded Ukraine, the government of Germany did a 180. He said, look, we haven't been spending enough money. We have to make it up uh, the deficit that we've accumulated. What's the very first thing that the German government did in, the, in defense spending in the, in the wake of the invasion of the Ukraine? They said, we're going to buy F-35s. Why are we buying F-35s? Because F-35s are certified to carry nuclear weapons. You have F-35s. Is that right? But so much of the discussion yes. of F-35s is kind of, people are kind of idiotic. They want this super fancy plane. No, they love no. ga ga gadgets and, you know, and so forth, right? F Look, putting a nuclear weapon on an airplane is not a trivial enterprise. I mean, you have to make sure that it, certain things are 100% reliable, uh, that the release mechanisms, the command control is there. Because you put a nuclear weapon on a plane, you want to make sure it it works exactly the way it's supposed to. So planes get certified as being nuclear capable. The F-35 is certified as nuclear capable. The other planes that were available for sale to West to Germany were not nuclear certified. So the Germans are sending very explicitly a signal. We are reinforcing the nuclear guarantee that the Americans provide on German airplanes, American warheads on German airplanes so that if Putin invades Germany, he has to worry about a German nuclear response using German. Or American if he invites is, Poland as a fellow or, NATO member or, of Germany. And, well, and Poland is buying F-35s also. Yeah. So, uh, and th that's the reason why the, the Japanese are buying F-35s. That's on the one side. The other side about the nuclear guarantee business is the other lesson that people look at, uh, look at is Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons and look what happened. You know, all, all the happy talk in the Budapest Memorandum, all this other kind of stuff, worthless. Uh, nuclear weapons, I say again, the terrible paradox, nuclear weapons do play a special role. They are the ultimate guarantee of, of territorial sovereignty. Countries have been invaded that have nuclear weapons. Israel in 73 was invaded. There have been border skirmishes between the Soviet Union and China, border skirmishes between Pakistan and India. But no country that has nuclear weapons has faced anything like a, uh, the kind of invasion of, of their territory that the Russians are doing versus the Ukraine. Why? It's too risky. The Indians staged a limited incursion into Pakistan in 1999, the Kargil War. And they deliberately took heavier casualties so as to avoid deep penetrations into Pakistan because they were afraid. If you go too deep, the Pakistanis might unleash their nuclear weapons. By the way, the Pakistani doctrine is the same as the American nuclear doctrine. We get invaded. We're weaker than our adversary. We're going to use nuclear weapons first in response to the non-nuclear attack. What's the Israeli doctrine? Well, they say they don't have nuclear weapons, but you know, clearly uh, during the 73 war, there was this famous period where it looked like the Israeli military was not doing that well. And they took steps to make it clear that if this goes on, our nuclear weapons are ready to be launched. Uh, so it's, it's not a crazy, it's not a culturally specific or regime specific response. Nuclear weapons do provide this ultimate guarantee and people know it and people have actually used it over and over again to make sure that they can control and contain the behavior of their adversaries. So um, how worried are you about two things, I guess I'll start with these two. Um, the, the example of 
the, the examples you've just cited in general and of Ukraine in specific having given up, I, I don't know if really controlled those weapons, but nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union that were on Ukrainian soil. I think it was always a question of who, who mm-hmm. maybe they were controlled from Moscow, but uh, having given them up and, and, and in return gotten sort of a pledge of, you know, of territorial integrity and sovereignty and so forth. Um, how worried are you that the lesson everyone in the world learns from this is, you know what, better to have nuclear weapons? How, how worried are you from a nuclear proliferation or non-proliferation point of view uh, about the lessons of, of Ukraine? And B, and maybe do that one first, and then B, of course, how worried if Putin's threats seem to back up a desire for negotiations, which we sort of then pressure the Ukrainians to let Putin have a face-saving way out and keep some of what he got and you know all this kind of stuff that's being discussed now. How worried are you there, too, that the nuclear threat then is, turns out to be uh, vindicated and, and successful, and that other countries see that, too, and think, well, hey, you know what, that's pretty useful to have them. I mean, how, how, how close are we, how does how we handle this deal with this threat of rewarding nuclear powers, letting them commit war crimes under the nuclear umbrella, as it were, and not pay a price for it, and also mm-hmm. the flip side, you know, poor Ukraine gives them up, and look what happens to them. Uh, quite worried. Uh, if it is understood by specific countries around the world that Russia could invade Ukraine, engage in atrocious behavior towards uh, Ukrainian civilians, and seize territory, and constrain NATO responses because Russia had nuclear threats which kept NATO at bay. Uh, other countries may, well, not other countries, China may say, huh, how is this relevant to our desire to get Taiwan, right? If America doesn't do things to help Ukraine because they're afraid of the escalation of nuclear weapons, can we engage in similar maneuvers so that the Americans won't do certain things to help Taiwan in response to a Chinese uh, non-nuclear military coercion of Taiwan. Uh, There were already hints that the Chinese were thinking about this. Taiwan's part of China. It's legitimate for China to use nuclear weapons for the defense of China, or it's legitimate for China to use nuclear weapons on the territory of China. And Taiwan is the territory of China. And the waters around Taiwan are are the Chinese national territory. So I think first and foremost, the lessons that the Chinese learn from what has already happened is a big problem. Because we may talk about stationing American nuclear weapons in Japan as part of the U.S.-Japan alliance. Nobody is going to think about putting American nuclear weapons in Taiwan. So China will face a non-nuclear Taiwan as Russia faced a non-nuclear Ukraine. Uh, and may say, we can limit what the United States does to help Taiwan in response. Does that mean we should give Taiwan nuclear weapons? No. Does that mean we should allow to get Taiwan to get nuclear weapons on its own? It's very risky. It's very dangerous. But it means, therefore, that we have to engage in more vigorous and more politically dramatic actions to convince the Chinese that uh, even if nuclear weapons are not used, uh, the United States is willing to take steps to defend the territory of Taiwan. Part of it's contingent. Part of of the lessons that people will learn are the lessons from what has already happened. Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons or relinquished control of nuclear weapons that were stationed on its soil, and uh, and it became vulnerable. Part of it's contingent. 
if Putin is perceived or if Putin can convey the message that he's actually won in Ukraine, he's actually successfully achieved the objectives that he has set for himself, uh, then that, that reinforces the message that nuclear weapons are not only good for keeping other people out of your conflict, nuclear weapons are good for getting things that you want that you can't get otherwise. I'm worried about the lessons that Iran will learn from, from, uh, from nuclear weapons. We, we, if Iran has nuclear weapons, it's not that they're going to nuke the Israelis. I mean, that's clearly suicidal on the part. But that's not the issue. Is can we do things in Lebanon? Can we help Hezbollah in Lebanon in ways and constrain Israeli responses? Because they say, well, the Iranians are protecting Hezbollah. You never know. They might use nuclear weapons to protect Hezbollah. Uh, the government of Turkey is already engaged in an effort, a program, to develop a civilian nuclear uh, uh, infrastructure, which is, will be quite capable of uh, producing nuclear weapons. Kim Jong-un has announced, announced last year that he's adopting a new strategy of strategic confrontation. And all these missile, the, all these ICBM launches that are taking place now, in conjunction with this nuclear program, are not accident. They're not kind of a, uh, a, a isolated, vainglorious uh, lunatic kind of doing things because it looks good on videos. He's doing it because he thinks that this will constrain the United States from taking steps to assist uh, in the defense of uh, South Korea. So we need to be thinking about how we defeat the political intent of the nuclear-assisted campaign in Ukraine. In the bulwark, I said, if Putin uses tactical nuclear weapons in ways that are demonstrative or whatever to assist him, uh, his effort to gain Ukraine, the United States has to demonstrate that those, that use of nuclear weapons will not be successful. Because if we don't, the message that other countries will learn that nuclear weapons work, nuclear weapons help you get what you want that you couldn't get otherwise. And the world in which that is the lesson that people learn is a very dangerous world. You know, it's a world in which people that are now pretty much constrained feel that they may be able to escape those constraints. Would an American non-nuclear military response to a Russian demonstrative use of tactical nuclear weapons, would that be risky? Yes. But what would the purpose of it be? The purpose of it would be to say, we're not going to let you use nuclear weapons as a coercive threat. We're going to stop you from doing what you shouldn't do, even if you threaten us with nuclear weapons, because we are confident that our nuclear deterrent will stop you from going further. You made reference earlier to the work that Herman Kahn and Thomas Schelling did. One of the things that they did that was very important, which has been forgotten, is that deterrence is not simply a peacetime tool. Deterrence is not simply what you have to stop the war from starting. Deter you have intra-war deterrence to deter the adversary from taking even more dangerous steps in a war that's going on. One of the lost intellectual tools that we had that Henry Kissinger, Herman Kahn, Thomas Schelling worked on very hard is deterrence needs to be useful even after the shooting starts. Even after the shooting starts, there are terrible things that could happen that we don't want to have happen. And that part has all been kind of, no, the sole purpose of nuclear weapons all this deterrence stuff is to stop the war from happening. Yeah, I mean. But 
But, but the war has started. We're in the middle of a war now. And there are bad things, extremely bad things, that we don't want to see happen. And we want to deter them, too. So concretely, what I want, I would like the United States, NATO collectively, to take steps that deters Putin from using chemical weapons, engaging in, in nuclear coercion, rattling, you know, moving to, or demonstrative use of nuclear weapons. We should simply not take it for granted that Putin won't do any of these things. He, his own doctrine, his own statements have indicated, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. And we should say, you're thinking about it, this is why it's a very bad idea for you actually to do it. Reinforcing capabilities to provide intra-war deterrence Again, it's something that used to be second nature for American military planners, second nature for NATO planners. It's gone away, and we have to kind of uh, get back to that. Um, Richard Nixon, in 1969, did some things to deter a Soviet military attack on China. There's interesting scholarship on this, you can go into the details. Remember, there was a border crisis. China and Russia were fighting on the border. The Russians were rattling their nuclear weapons. They were bringing SS-4 medium-range missiles to the border. They were flying bombers around. The United States, in October of 1969, goes on a global nuclear alert. Kissinger, at that time, in the White House, is writing memorandums saying, we have to convince the Russians and we have to convince the Chinese that America won't stand by and do nothing if, if Russia engages in a nuclear strike against China. And what was a credible, visible way of doing that? You exercise your nuclear forces. You put your nuclear submarines out to sea. You engage in intelligence activities that you wouldn't ordinarily engage in. You engage in electronic warfare. There's a whole list of things that were discussed. Some of them were implemented. But what was this? This is the business of intra-war deterrence. The Chinese and the Soviets were already at each other's throats. We didn't want the Soviets to go further. The Soviets were coming to the United States. They sent out emissaries to the United States and say, hey, you don't like the Chinese, we don't like the Chinese. Why don't we go in together against the Chinese, knock them out? And we were afraid that the Chinese would say, hmm, the Americans might do it. And then we were afraid that the Russians might think, the Americans really won't do anything. They'll stand by and we'll... So we, Richard Nixon, with Henry Kissinger's support, States this global military alert, uh, which ultimately did have the effect of uh, getting the Russians to stand down. So in other words, uh, in, in 1973, uh, the uh, Russians threatened nuclear weapons used to help the Egyptians in the, war, in the last phases of the war against Israel. And again, James Schlesinger, Secretary of Defense, put the United States military worldwide on DEFCON 3. He did that on his own, by the way, because Richard Nixon was going through Watergate and probably was drunk. Uh, but, it was, but what he did was he put American forces on alert to persuade the Russians not to go further in the Middle East. I interviewed Jim Schlesinger uh, some years before he died. I said, uh, Mr. Secretary, you know, what did you have in mind by putting American nuclear forces on DEFCON 3 in October of 1973? And he said to me, Steve, I can't remember. <laughs> but, Steve, as you know, going on DEFCON 3 means putting all American tactical bombers in Europe armed with nuclear weapons on strip alert. They can take off within a matter of a minute. As you know, Steve, those nuclear armed 
bombers can reach the Soviet Union in 10 minutes. And as you know, Steve, that means that we can knock out critical Soviet facilities before they can disperse them or evacuate them. So he was, say, he was telling me without telling me, we were presenting the Soviet Union with a deterrent threat. If you use nuclear weapons in the Middle East, you are at risk, you are vulnerable. Was that risk free? No. If the Soviets had used nuclear weapons to change the outcome of the 1973 war, would that have involved risks? Oh, absolutely. So if the United States takes steps now to be prepared to deter the Russians from chemical weapons use, other kinds of weapons, uh, nuclear weapons use in Ukraine, does it have risks? Yes. But a world in which the Soviets, Russians, sorry, successfully use nuclear threats to win the war in Ukraine, that is a very risky world. Herman Kahn used to say that if, when, you know, uh, the Allied nations had stood up to Hitler at the time of the Czechoslovakian crisis in 1938, what would have been the outcome? It would have been a mess. There would have been a military coup against Hitler. The economy of Germany would have gone to the toilet. Uh, the European politics would be in an uproar. Everybody would say, standing up to Hitler, what a stupid thing to do. Because they wouldn't have seen what was deterred from happening. Deterrence by its nature, if it succeeds, prevents terrible things from happening, which you don't see. And therefore, you only see the risks that you did run. You don't see the risks that you avoided. And what I'm trying to do by means of this kind of long-winded discourse is paint as realistic and clear picture of the risks the NATO world faces if we don't do the things that are necessary to deter Russian nuclear weapons use in the current crisis. As I said, it fundamentally changes the world. And it seems that the, the degree to which we are, or maybe is hard to tell, self-deterring from doing certain things short of, considerably short of, I would say, the nuclear threshold, uh, because of the threat of World War III, which you say implicitly is really not implicitly, explicitly now is, is Putin's threat to consider using nuclear weapons. That kind of self-deterrence is itself dangerous, right? Because it, it for mm -hmm. the reasons you said, I mean, I was so struck and have been critical. Uh, Jen Psaki, the White House Press Secretary, uh, said when we decided not to send the MiG-29s over uh, into Ukraine, which may not have been the weapon they needed, so that's a separate issue, but she said it would be escalatory. But if you start saying that it's using sending conventional arms to the Ukrainians to defend themselves against a Russian attack is escalatory, what are you worried about? You're worried about, I guess, the Russians, they're not going to pull, kill, are they going to use more conventional weapons? Well, maybe, but they're being pretty brutal. So really what you're doing is being deterred, I think, by Putin's threats of tactical nuclear weapons to do some things conventionally that might well help the Ukrainians. And that seems like a very bad signal to send. The, the, yes. and, and I was also struck by this, to say a word about this in with regard to Khan's famous escalation mm -hmm. letters and all this right. sort of stuff. I mean, she said it, and this I think it did probably reveal, I'm sure Jen Psaki didn't make this up, so I mean, she was reflecting mm -hmm. what had been said to her by the National Security Advisor or maybe the President or that she'd heard in very high-level meetings, uh, that, well, we can't do it because it's escalatory, but that's itself a very revealing statement because that's not a, Escalatory is not like a showstopper. It does not mean you no. can't do it. That's not, right. you know, it's not, escalatory right. means, yes, it would be one step up, if you want to use the metaphor, the escalation mm -hmm. ladder. You need to think it through. You need to see what the Russians would then do. You need to see what your next step would do. You might think about signaling certain things so they don't freak out if you do it. 
But escalatory does not is not a a, a red light. Escalatory is a yes. yellow light, I suppose, of you know thinking things through before you do things. But it was very striking to me that she thought using that term was it's it's sort of like saying, well, it would be impermissible, evil, mm-hmm. wrong, yes. out of the yes. question, against the law. But it isn't any of those things, escalatory. No. So anyway, no, say a it, word about it, escalation. <laughs> escalation is a tool, just like de-escalation is a tool. Sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's not. We deliberately and explicitly escalated our economic sanctions, right? We started at low levels, raised them up, because we said, okay, either we, we need to increase the level of economic warfare against Russia, uh, and could it lead to further escalation beyond that? Yes, but it also might lead to de-escalation. You're right. The use of the word escalation has become like racism or genocide. It's a way of ending the argument. If it's escalatory, obviously we don't want to do that. Whereas escalation historically has been, okay, uh, if we operate at a higher level, maybe we have a better chance of achieving our objectives. The old term was escalation dominance. Uh, if we shift the conflict to a higher level, it's because we can produce a satisfactory outcome at that level. We can win, if you want to put it that way. Uh, that, was a, that was not a concept the Russians invented. We understood it. Uh, and, it's, and the idea of escalate to de-escalate is in a way like the concept of going all in in a poker game. You force the adversary to back because you're willing to do things he's not willing to match. Sometimes it's a good thing to do, sometimes it's a stupid thing to do. It depends on the situation. But the point is also that you made, de-escalation is also risky. If you reduce your level of activity, maybe that's good, it will induce reciprocal restraint on the other side. It may also invite the other side to take advantage of the fact that you're doing less, uh, which unfortunately is some of the lessons that we learned from the uh, Obama administration, which we deliberately tried to de-escalate conflicts in Syria, not escalate them. And what happened was people, well, we can use chemical weapons and actually keep Bashar al-Assad in power and use chemical weapons in other contexts. So escalation is, is, an, is an instrument, it's a tool. It's like de-escalation. You use it on the circumstances where you think it will induce in your adversary uh, or has a better likelihood of inducing in your adversary the responses that you want to see. Uh, the escalation ladder, by the way, was, not, was never invented as a kind of a lockstep list of things. First I do number one, then I do number two. It's a way of making visible to yourself the range of things that you could do so that you would choose from that range of things that which is most likely to get you where you want to go. By the way, just for the record, Herman Kahn's escalation letter put full-scale economic sanctions just short of general war, because hmm. historically that had been the case. Uh, so if you don't like escalation, then you don't like the sanctions regime that we put on the Russians. And the Russians are saying this. The Russians have said, your sanctions regime is the equivalent of a, of a, of a declaration of war. They're trying to get us to, to uh, back off to self-deter. So I'd like us to get out of the business of using escalation as a, as a, as a conversation ender. This escalatory, therefore, obviously, it's off the table. Uh, it has risks, but so does not escalating have risk, and we have to evaluate one versus this is the other. Again, th- this used to be kind of second nature intellectually. People understood that escalation sometimes could be used and sometimes shouldn't, but it's... Because of the wars that the United States fought in the Middle East, 
escalation was seen as expanding wars that we didn't want to expand, rather than as ways of winning wars. Oh, we're just prolonging the war, making it all longer, uh, as opposed to we're escalating the war to produce an outcome uh, that we want to see happen. So we kind of taught ourselves kind of the wrong way of thinking about escalation as a result of the kinds of conflicts we were fighting in global war terror and uh, elsewhere. I mean, it needn't have been, I was thinking as you spoke, so the surge in 2007 in Iraq was explicitly yes. defended and correctly yes. defended, it turned out, yes. as a way of taking yes. short-term pain upon ourselves, obviously, in terms of sending more troops and, and fighting a more aggressive war, but in order to, to solve the problem, to win the war or, yes. or stop the civil war, maybe is a better way of putting it, and yes. uh, and get do counterinsurgency right, and so we could then draw down, which we did within a year of the right. surge. So it's not as if we have no experience right. of something like that, you know. But Yeah, yeah. and in, in our last conversation, we I, I referred to the fact that this book, The Unraveling, talks about how we gave up all the gains that we get by the surge. It was, this will be seen as partisan in a defense of the Bush administration, but I think objectively it's correct. The surge did produce a reduction in the level of violence in Iraq because the adversary said our strategy of incrementally ratcheting up violence is met by this massive response and we have to back down. Yeah. It's, it's not crazy. It's not even not, it's just common sense in many ways. Yeah, and, and also it's not just the, what they say, it's also they suffer real losses, so it's yes, like hard right, for them to, right. to keep fighting. Um, so maybe in conclusion, I think this is really very interesting and in sort of the whole uh, restoring a kind of way of thinking. I mean, of course, to just one footnote on that, that way of thinking was attacked mercilessly and mocked at the time, Dr. Strangelove, and then the No First Use mm -hmm. was a big movement in America for a long time mm -hmm. and had respectable mm -hmm. supporters. And in, in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken, all those huge demonstrations against Reagan, weren't, mm -hmm. they, de weren't they demonstrating against our willingness in a sense to, to 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 deploy weapons to Europe and to talk about the fact that that might be it was important militarily to deter Russia to deter the Soviet Union to deploy these weapons I mean that was kind of what the issue was right so it's always been a controversial you might say and and maybe it's Schlesinger's answers to you suggest sort of something done a little bit out of the spotlight but important yes uh, well First of all, the, uh, the nuclear aversion in Germany and Japan, but not only those countries. Uh, look, nuclear weapons are these massively horrible weapons, uh, and their use is different. And the nuclear taboo is something that we're all glad exists, and you know, I would not be, want to advocate that we violate it. Now, the question is, can other countries utilize that special status of nuclear weapons against us. That's the first point. Second point is that if you don't want to see nuclear weapons used, if you don't want to see nuclear weapons employed in ways that give advantages to states using nuclear weapons coercively, you have to do the kinds of things that Ronald Reagan did, which is to say the Soviet Union initiated the, uh, the escalation in Europe by deploying larger numbers of more effective nuclear weapons targeted on Europe and Japan. The Germans, Helmut Schmidt, asked us to put weapons into Europe. The, so the Soviet Union, utilizing the legitimate anti-nuclear sentiment of Germany, waged a massive covert political warfare campaign to spend money and other kinds of things to the anti-war activists uh, to gin it up as a part of its, its, its arsenal of political instruments against it. 
But the government of Germany, left wing and right wing, and the United States persevered. And what was the outcome? The Soviet Union pulled out and destroyed the nuclear weapons that were threatening Europe, in response to which the United States pulled its nuclear weapons. So denuclearization is not something that I oppose. What I oppose is letting states that have nuclear weapons get benefits from coercively threatening the use of those weapons. How do you get them to give, not do that? Well, you may have to escalate. America, the United States put more nuclear weapons into Europe. If you want to say that's escalation, that's counter-escalation. But it had the effect of getting the Soviet Union under Gorbachev to say, okay, fair enough, we give up, we do it. Finally, on the point of doing it out of the limelight, it was a very important thing. I'm sure 99.9% .9 of the people watching this podcast never heard of the October 1969 nuclear alert. Nine, you know, most people don't know uh, about what American nuclear forces in Europe did in October of 1973. And that's good. People talk about giving Putin an off-ramp. People talk about not putting him in a corner. Publicly threatening a state or an, a state leader with nuclear war and then watching him back down probably is bad for the political survival of that leader. Khrushchev was forced out of office in October of August of 1964 after the failure of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is some advantage in doing quietly things that which, if done publicly, would create political humiliation and political pressures not to give in. The best example is the Israeli strike on the Syrian-built North, North Korean built Syrian reactor at El Kibar. The, Syri the Israelis never said they see 2007, the I guess, right? Yeah. 2007, 2008. Yeah. They, they did it. They never talked about it. They had never admitted it. The Syrians never talked about it. The intent was, the intent was to, to, to destroy it. It was achieved. The intent was not to put Bashar al-Assad in a situation where politically he has to strike back at Israel because that could lead to the kind of escalation that you might not want. So the management of the flow of information is very important. So the United States government, in my view very correctly, is doing a, a fair number of things to help the Ukrainian government and not making a big deal out of it, saying, hey, Russians, you know, your army is falling apart because of what the United States is doing to help Ukraine. United States government responsible said the Ukrainian people are very brave, very competent, very courageous. They're defending their country. That's what's going on. Uh, you sh because you want to achieve your objectives, you should avoid the actions that make it harder for your adversary to make concessions. That's again, being willing to escalate doesn't mean being triumphalist. Doesn't mean being well, wanting to win propaganda victories. It means understanding your adversary and maneuvering in ways to uh, that take into account his nature and his needs and his responses. There's one point you asked me if I wanted to make a point uh, towards the end, which we didn't come up. The successful use of American deterrent measures during the Cold War all had at its foundation a decades-long, extremely successful intelligence effort. You can't influence your adversary if you don't understand your adversary. We went to great lengths to understand exactly how the Russians thought, Soviets thought about escalation, how they thought about nuclear weapons, what they saw as their vulnerabilities, what they saw as their, we had, now it can be discussed openly because it's all been real, we had uh, uh, 
Polish and Russian agents on the Soviet general staff, literally giving us Soviet war plans. Uh, we had ways of listening into Soviet communications, which enabled us to know what they were thinking as they were thinking it. You don't snap your fingers and create that kind of understanding of the adversary, which enables you to take actions which are not ham-handed, which are not ineffective because they don't understand the way your adversary responds. The big problem facing the United States now is not only Russia, it's China. If there's one takeaway, I say the United States, I hope, is and should be engaged in a long-term effort to radically improve our nature of Chinese national security decision-making so that we don't do by mistake things that create responses that we don't want and that we do do things that lead to the outcomes that take into account the nature of our adversary and acts, interacts with our adversary in ways that produce the outcomes we want. In other words, it's not just strength. It's just that overwhelming force. It's applying that force in a way that takes into account how your adversary responds to your use of force. Uh, and as I said, during the Cold War, people thought about all the money we wasted in the Cold War. We spent tens of billions of dollars on very expensive things and took risks so that we could have the information that we needed so that we could do things that were not stupid. And the Cold War was not a total not, not success, uh, but on the whole, it wound up better than almost anybody at the time thought it would. Uh, and if we're going to be equally successful with regard to the Russians now or the Chinese in the future, that kind of informational foundation uh, is, is as important, maybe more important, than hypersonic weapons or fancy missile defenses. Uh, because if you don't understand how your adversary reacts to what you're doing, you will make mistakes. You'll wind up doing things that don't get you what you want and may produce things that you don't want. So again, there's a tendency to say people like you and me all were hawks who were always advocating the use of force. No, we're advocating an, understand, an understanding of the adversary as he actually is. Not to have hopeful delusions about the adversary and not to assume that if we're strong, the adversary will do everything we want. The two extremes that Aristotle would advise us to, uh, advise us to avoid. What is, what is the true nature of your adversary? And what are the actions that you undertake to get your adversary to respond in ways which actually wind up making the world a better place? Um, now that's terrific. So two, I guess, final related questions taken in whichever order. Um, one, the sort of bigger picture one, I guess, of uh, you know how prepared or unprepared uh, is the U.S. government f to engage in the kind of thinking and policy making that you talk about? I mean, have we entirely lost this memory? Is it pretty good behind the scenes, <clears throat> but we just don't talk about it much? I mean, how, as Americans, how how much work do we have to do, uh, leaving aside if this crisis has never happened with Putin? Yeah. Do we have to do, um, you know, in terms of repairing our own ability to think and act in, in an intelligent way in this in a world in which nuclear weapons are not going away in the very near future. And then secondly, you mentioned, I think, quickly, but it's an important point to maybe just elaborate a bit on uh, how important the outcome of this actual conflict is for the kinds of topics we've been discussing. I mean, everyone mm -hmm. has focused, and I have too, and I think correctly, that this is democracy versus uh, authoritarianism versus dictatorship. I mean, it's extremely important. It, I think in that way, Zelensky versus Putin, it's sort of a, a very big signal about which way the world might go in the next decade, uh, and who's, who's 
uh, that's why it matters what happens, but it also matters more from the point of view of, of uh, the nuclear question as well, is what mm-hmm. you've been saying. So anyway, either of those, how, how the U.S. government capacity, general capability and, and foreign policy establishment, thoughtfulness about this on the one hand, and then the particular outcome of, the, of, of this conflict on the other, if there is a clear outcome, which I guess. Uh, no, those are excellent questions, both of them. On the first point, the kind of the institutional preparation of the United States government, it did, I think most uh, objective observers will uh, uh, agree that we allowed, the United States government allowed its capacity to deal with this kind of high intensity competition, we allowed it to lapse uh, during the post-Cold War euphoria and then the focus on the global war on terror, in which uh, you know, uh, again, honestly, the stakes were much lower uh, and uh, there were priorities that were higher. And that wasn't wrong, it was just the way it was, but it did constitute a, a, a significant atrophy in our institutional capacity. I'll give you a specific example. Uh, during the Cold War, we said, you know, from time to time, there could be crises involving confrontations between the United States and the Soviet Union. We have to practice. We have to imagine the range of things that could happen and that we have to get the people who are in government in high positions to pr- go through exercises, simulations, so that if a real crisis happens, they're not dealing with these kinds of questions for the first time. They will have had staff work done. They'll have option books prepared. They'll know who they should talk to. They should know who should be in the room. It has to be brought in from, you know. Those exercises were conducted every year, sometimes twice a year, and not with you know, low-level staff people, with the senior people. When the Cold War ended, that ended. Hmm. I have no idea what goes on in its entirety in the American government now. I'm out, it's secret, should be secret. There's a Washington Post story that said, four days into the war, the White House begins conducting simulations to game out what would happen if alternative American courses of action. That should have been happening, you know, months, years beforehand. Now, and maybe it was, right? This is a Washington Post story. Who knows what was really going on? The fact that the simulations and exercises were being done at that point, great. You get, you get major points for that. But think of the range of scenarios that create intense challenges to the United States. It's not just the Russians and you know, as a Chinese. It's more difficult now to have that kind of institutional capacity than it was uh, during the uh, Cold War because the range of threats facing us now is larger. And in many ways, the Chinese are a more competent adversary than the Russians were. And we had decades of experience with the Russians. We kind of got to the point where we understood how they worked and we knew what to do. We were not there yet. So the good news is the United States government is working on improving its institutional capacity for managing these kinds of issues, getting the kind of remission, developing, uh, having practices which allow you intelligently to deal with these kind of things. We probably should be doing more. Okay. Uh, okay. Second point about the outcome of the war. Because of the uh, global war on terror, because of the neocon versus non-neocons. Uh, this has all come down to, are you in favor of regime change or not? You know, are, are, are you in favor of the spread of democracy or not? I 
personally, I think the world would be in a better place if Western-style democracy were extended to additional countries. But fundamentally, that's a difficult process, which is difficult to manage. And we may have made some mistakes in the past and tried to do too much. Perfectly happy to concede that. But what's going on in Ukraine now is not simply about whether democracy prevails against autocracy. It's whether the coercive use of, a, of military power uh, against a non-nuclear state is allowed to succeed. Even if the government of uh, uh, Turkey never becomes democratic, even if the government of uh, 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 other countries in Asia never become democratic, you don't want them to think that they can use nuclear power, nuclear military power, in ways which uh, change the status quo. People talk about a rules-based liberal order, and maybe they oversell it, or they say there's more there than there is. Happy to argue that. The norm that you do not use military power to change territorial boundaries is not a trivial norm. And it is a real accomplishment of the American-led post-war order that people say, you just can't do that. The global response, or the near global response to the invasion of Ukraine is, you can't use an army to change borders. It's just wrong. That, that is not a trivial accomplishment. If that norm is eroded, well, if you, you know, use nuclear threats, if you kind of isolate your adversary, if you create a sufficiently plausible narrative that the territory at stake really always was part of our territory, if you can engage in that kind of spin successfully, then the post-war World War II norm that you don't use force to change barriers, that's gone. The nuclear taboo is one norm. It's a good norm. I like it. The norm that states that violate territorial status quo by military force cannot be allowed to succeed, another very powerful norm. If, if the Donbass is separated, if larger chunks of Ukraine are taken away, if Russia engages in a long-term salami slice strategy to, okay, we're going to pull back now, wait till the world is, uh, is, goes back to normal, the Europeans won't hang on to the sanctions forever, and then gradually put political and other kinds of pressure on the... That's a, that's a world in which a powerful norm, which is good for everybody, not just democracies, has been eroded. So when Zelensky is saying, you know, he's fighting his country, his nation is fighting a fight on behalf of Ukraine, but not only on behalf of Ukraine, it's not propaganda. Uh, it's about whether or not states can be secure within their own borders, or whether they're in a world in which, gee, maybe I better attack my neighbor before he attacks me, because if he attacks me, nobody's going to come to my aid. And if he gets away with it, he gets away with it. In other words, if it's the realist world, in which you just kind of take what you can, uh, that's a world in which even def defensive states may say, we can't afford to stand by and wait until the, our bad guys attack us. We better attack now. And that's a world which does more resemble the world of the 18th and 19th century, in which wars are, are engaged in opportunistically not because fundamental interests of states, because I have to go to war because if I don't, somebody else might. Uh, and, and that's the 18th and 19th century plus nuclear weapons, which is not Plus nuclear which is weapons, not good. And, uh, which is, you know, if you just believe in statistics that the greater number, uh, the number of these weapons that are distributed, the more times they're deployed, uh, the more chances there are for something to go wrong, even with the best rules in the world. Look, a lot of the crisis management mechanisms that we had so much faith in with us and the Russian old hotlines, we called up the Russian generals, they wouldn't pick up the phone. 
recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That, I was a little. I mean, this is maybe being, having been in government, not that I was intimately involved yeah. in dealing with the Russian generals, but you know, I was familiar with what was happening when I was the vice president, chief of staff. Sometimes, um, yeah, that was startling. I thought that was like whoa. Even in the Cold War, yeah, that was kind of thought to be an important. People made fun of the hotline, the red line, whatever it was called, the red phones hotline. Right. But, you know, it was actually kind of a symbol of, you know, we're all going to try to not let this spin out of control because of misunderstandings and miscalculations. And uh, that's that's a little... It was. It was particularly striking because uh, the American military had been engaging in reasonably successful efforts to, uh, of deconfliction with the Russian military in places like Syria. Right. Right? We're both flying airplanes around, don't want to do anything stupid by mistake. And the cooperation was was pretty good. And on the basis of that, the expectation in the American military is, okay, military to military, we're professionals, we share an interest, and all of a sudden the wall goes down and nothing happens. Why? Because the Russians are afraid we may say to Russian generals, hey, your boss is kind of getting out of control, maybe you want to do something about that. So Putin says no. And so the idea that we can assume that peacetime mechanisms for crisis avoidance will be available in, 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 when the balloon goes up, when things get serious. Uh, that may not be realistic, which means we have to think about other ways of doing it. Uh, communications in crisis are important. Being able to talk to your adversary to communicate what's going on is important. Uh, but again, we've let those mechanisms atrophy. We've assumed that the mechanisms that have worked in peacetime in non-great power confrontations will continue to work in when things really get unpleasant, uh, appears not to be justified by our observations in this war. Uh, and we have had unhappy experiences with the Chinese. When the EP3 went down over Hainan Island, we called up the Chinese. We couldn't get anybody to pick up the phone there either. Uh, okay. What does that mean? It means it's something that you have to, you have to work on, you have to uh, think about. So the outcome of this crisis should not, so war, should not simply be, okay, we can't let Putin win. The outcome of the takeaway from this war is what were the crisis management mechanisms that we thought were going to work, but actually failed. And the crisis deterrence, me- the war deterrence the mechanisms that yes. we seem not to, did not work. Right. Well, I mean, maybe they the, couldn't have worked. Pres- I mean, maybe Putin just wanted to do it, you know. But you know. President Biden put the best spin on it by saying, "Well, nobody ever thought economic sanctions would deter." But people quite obviously did believe yeah, economic right. sanctions would, and and they, they did it. Before this war, if you went to all the respectable think tanks around town, they said, "Oh, economic sanctions has worked." You know, look at what it's done in the Middle East against Iran. Look what it's doing again. Yeah, you know. uh, and the response to that was. Countries seeing that economic sanctions have been successful will work out ways of getting around them. Countermeasures, what the Russians have developed, are developing. We stories last yesterday, two days ago, they had put in place an entirely new credit card mechanism, clearing mechanism in Russia. So when Mastercard Visa went down, Russians could still use credit cards in Russia, not outside Russia. The Chinese are busy putting. I'm going with the point is, we had been too willing to assume that economic sanctions would be the instrument of choice in deterring crises. We, we kind of pretend now that we didn't believe that, but we did. And now we have to revisit that. Again, uh, we used to believe that we could avoid the deployment and utilization of old-fashioned military power as a way of deterring crisis and making sure the crises don't uh, proceed in ways that we don't want them to. 
Now we see that military power of the old-fashioned kind has to be employed along with economic sanctions, along with cyber capabilities. You know, the Russian military had terrible problems in Ukraine. This is on the statement of the former head of Homeland Security, Richard Clark. The Russian military secure communication system went down on the first day of the war. And Ambassador Clark kind of looked at the camera and said, well, we have to assume the Ukrainians did it. And maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't, and maybe we helped them, I don't know. But when that system went down, the Russian generals had to use cell phones, which means we could find where they were to kill them. It means they couldn't coordinate their forces. Why weren't the Russians flying airplanes over the battlefield in Ukraine? Flying your own airplanes over your own forces when they're shooting at other people is a very dangerous business unless you have a, a communications network which deconflicts all that stuff. You just can't pick up a cell phone and say, hey, my MiG-29s are flying over you, don't shoot. It's a very elaborate procedure. The other thing the United States did, again, this is on public testimony, is that somehow or another Elon Musk had, before the war started, gotten Starlink, Starlink internet disks into Ukraine. So when there was an attack on Ukrainian internet facilities, which there was, the, the Viaset via uh, satellite communication system, the Ukrainians were able to maintain internet connectivity because Elon Musk, probably with some wink and a nod from the American government, uh, had put it in place. Just think of what that meant. Vladimir Zelensky was able to engage in Zoom calls with leaders all over the world. He was able to speak to part. Without that, that extraordinarily effective information campaign, public, camp public diplomacy campaign, wouldn't have been possible. So what's the lesson? The lesson is you need to be able to combine and integrate all these instruments of power, traditional military power, economic power, cyber power, informational political warfare tactics, into a suite of activities which are integrated uh, to deal with what will be very challenging uh, threats facing us. And you were in government, Bill. You know the people say we have to have a whole of government approach. And usually they say that when they mean, when they really want to say is, don't bother my department, tell somebody else to do it. Uh, this really will require the creation of new institutions within the American government which bring together and prepare and deploy these combined capabilities in a coordinated way. We created new institutions at the beginning of the Cold War, Joint Chiefs of Staff, things like that, Central Intelligence Agency to coordinate different intelligence organizations, now in the world in which nuclear, cyber, political warfare uh, techniques are being used by our adversaries in a coordinated way, we probably need new institutions for this post-Cold post War era uh, to uh, formulate, employ, and direct the kinds of capabilities uh, of the kinds that we've just been talking about. That's a long-term effort. This is a long-term problem. Um, I'm, my hope is that the, the war has motivated people to kind of uh, 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 addresses uh, more seriously perhaps than it's been done in the past. We'll have to get to get back together in six or 12 months when the war is over or maybe it's, it's a pause or maybe it's going on and see where we stand on that and also I'll discuss that longer term effort in more detail because that's awfully important. But Steve, thanks, really thank you for, for joining me on that. I think it's been very, for My me, pleasure. very instructive and enlightening conversation, a, not a uh, 
not a sort of uh, the most cheerful or lighthearted one I've ever had here on, on conversations, but, but really worthwhile and, and important. So thank you, Steve. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, Bill. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for joining us on Conversations.